Tonight's reading is Acts 15, and we're starting at verse 1. Certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some other believers, to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. The church sent them on their way, and as they traveled through Samaria, they told how the Gentiles had been converted. This news made all the believers very glad. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and elders, to whom they reported everything God had done through them. Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and elders met to consider this question. After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago, God made a choice among you that the Gentiles should hear from my lips and the message of the gospel and believe. God knows the heart, showed, they accepted them, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them, just as he did to us. He did not discriminate between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try and test God by putting on the necks of the Gentile a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have believed to bear? No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that we are saved, just as they are. The whole assembly became quiet, became silent, as they listened to Barnabas and Paul, telling them about the signs and wonders God had done among the Gentiles through them. When they finished, James spoke up. Brothers, he said, listen to me. Simon had described, us, described to us how God first intervened to choose a people for his name from the Gentiles. The word of the prophets are in agreement with this, as it is written. After this, I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. It ru ruins, its ruins I will rebuild and I will restore it that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord, who does, not, who does these things, things known from long ago. It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals and from blood. For the law of Moses had been preached in every city from the earliest of times and is read in the synagogues on every Sabbath. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I will just pray for Gareth. Lord, we thank you so much uh, for Gareth and all the preparation that he's put into this talk this week. Lord, we pray that as he speaks to us, he will be speaking your words and we will be listening out for what you have to say to us. Amen. 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 Uh, thank you, Laura. It's good to be with you this evening uh, here and at home. My name is Gareth, as has been said. I'm part of a clergy team at St. Nick's. I'm based on some of the kind of background ambience in the city. Uh, I sense that actually the whole of Nottingham is excited about the message that I'm about to, about to bring. Uh, we are and have been for the last several weeks in the book of Acts, which is the story of the birth, the beginning and the growth of the church. How the church went from a small group 
of Galilean Jesus followers to a global multicultural movement that is still here two millennia later. And it grew in such a way that consistently and surprisingly crossed borders and boundaries, both national and cultural and ethnic. And over the last couple of weeks, the last two weeks, we've been in one particular text, Acts chapter 10, which really tells a story of Peter and Cornelius and how for the very first time, the Gentiles, i.e. the non-Jews, uh, received the Holy Spirit. Up until now, uh, up until then rather, uh, God had been constantly expanding uh, his family and inviting people from all over the world, but they'd always been Jewish believers. And yet in Acts chapter 10, Cornelius and his household, this group of Gentiles, this group of non-Jews, got invited into God's family. And what this kicks off is an explosion of growth uh, of Christianity, of the early church amongst those outside of Judaism. And so Gentile churches, new fledgling Christian communities starts to spring up. And perhaps the most notable one, which we read about in Acts 11 and Acts 13 and Acts 14 is, is one in Antioch, this church in Antioch, which goes on to be a really important church. And Antioch is in what we would now call Syria. Now, this development is for uh, many people. If you're Paul or Barnabas, two of the early church leaders, that is great news. This is super exciting. They can't get enough of all that God is doing amongst the Gentiles. But then we come to Acts chapter 15, verse 1, and we read, certain people came down from Judea. Just to stop there, whenever a sentence begins, certain people, certain people, you know it's not going to end well. Certain people are probably the worst kind of people. But we read, certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers, unless you are circumcised, you cannot be saved. Unless you are circumcised according to the law of Moses, you cannot be saved. And thus kicks off what was probably the first major controversy in the life of the church. Now, it's probably worth pointing out that the controversy, that the question, the contention at this point is not whether or not Gentiles can be included in God's family. That's not what they're contending in verse one. Okay, but what the debate is about is how Gentiles can be included. What part can they play and under what conditions can they be part of God's family? Do these Gentiles have to basically convert to Judaism in order to follow Jesus? Now, at this point, I think this is on one level just a really helpful reality check against a bit of a tendency that I think we have to romanticize the early church. We might read Acts and we might think, gosh, the New Testament church, if only it was like that. Back then, it was just growth. It was just God adding to their number daily. It was just people sitting around, sharing possessions, having a great time. It was just people in perfect harmony with the Holy Spirit. It was all great. But Acts 15 is a helpful reality check that controversy and disagreement has pretty much been there in the church from the beginning. And in a strange way, I find that pretty comforting, that even when we disagree, we're not that far off from the New Testament church. But it's also really hopeful 
in so much as actually what begins with controversy, what begins with pretty difficult disagreements, actually is transformed by the Holy Spirit into something truly beautiful. And so it seems to me that crudely, and this is really crude, uh, if the last two weeks have been about how we, that is, you and I, Gentiles, non-Jews, got a seat at the meal table, the family meal table in God's family. If the last two weeks we've heard, how did we get to sit down and be part of God's family? This week, as we look a little bit more about what kind of inclusion that is, what the conditions are, well, this week is the week that explains how, when we sit down at the table, we get to have bacon in our meals. That's basically what this is. If, if last couple of weeks have been about whether or not we get to sit at the table, this week is what kind of things do we get to eat? And so, and more profoundly, I think what Acts 15 gives us a little glimpse of is a kind of how the church learned to be the church in a more mature way. Faced with an actual controversial set of questions, how did the church cope? How did the church grow? And how did the church learn to be a community of different people coming from different directions, all one body, as Will was praying earlier, under Christ. And so I want to quickly lay out three ways or three means by which the church learns to be the church in Acts chapter 15. And the first is that the church has to learn to have courageous conversations. The church learns to have courageous conversations. In verse 2, having heard the contention of this group of people, Paul and Barnabas are brought into sharp dispute and debate with them. This claim that these people, these certain people were making, brings Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute with them. And so it seems to me that courageous conversations in the church always begin with the willingness to confront difficult questions. I was reflecting a little bit on what I would have done if I had been Paul and Barnabas in that early church, and I'd been ministering to these people, uh, these people in Antioch, these new believers, and I'd heard some teachers come along and tell them that actually if they truly wanted to be saved and part of God's family, they had to get circumcised, they had to become, uh, they had to obey the law of Moses. I suspect what I would have done is I would have waited until, um, until the, these teachers left. Maybe during their talk, I would have been going, and then I might have had a quiet word with people in the church and said, you know, I mean, some people just have certain opinions, don't they? And I probably would have almost let it lie. But I actually love and appreciate how Paul and Barnabas are willing to courageously confront this and have the conversation. But As verse 2 continues, it becomes clear that actually we need more than just that kind of confrontation. Wider conversations are needed. So having had this debate, Paul and Barnabas are basically appointed along with some other believers to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. So once the church knows that there's this big question, there's this elephant in the room, rather than go, okay, we're just going to sit here and pretend it isn't there, Or rather than just go, okay, we're just going to watch these two different groups of people uh, have a slanging match. They go, no, we're going to have a proper community-wide conversation about what's happening here. 
And over the course of verses three to five, we find out that within the church, that early church, there pretty much are a variety of views. In verses three and four, Paul and Barnabas go about and they're really excited telling all the stories, the missionary stories of what's going on, of what God is doing in the, amongst the Gentiles. And it, we find out that some people are like super excited. They're just like, great, bring them in, love what God is doing. And then in verse 5, however, we read that once they get to Jerusalem, again, a group of believers, this time who belonged to the party of the Pharisees, stood up and said, no, the Gentiles must be circumcised and require to keep the law of Moses. And so you have this variety of views present in the early church. And so courageous conversations are necessary if we're actually going to get anywhere. And as we're thinking about this, I just want to offer three quick reflections on all of this. The first is to say, and again, this goes back to that point about being realistic and not romanticizing the early church, is that the church always has been a bit of an eclectic group. It has always had distinct groups within it. This may seem strange as a thing to sort of really focus on, but one of the things that really struck me in this passage in verse 5 in particular is that some of the Christians some of the early church were from the party of the Pharisees. Now, if you were like me, if you grew up in the church, and if you've been around the church and any preaching on the Gospels for any length of time, then the Pharisees are often presented as basically like the bogeymen in the Gospels, right? They're like the pantomime villains that Jesus is constantly arguing against. They're like the people that we would sort of boo when they come on and be all religious, right? That's kind of how they're presented in a lot of preaching and teaching and Sunday school lessons, right? And yet, not only was Paul himself a former Pharisee, but actually there are Pharisees in the early church. All of this is to say is that the church has always actually had a big variety of people. And actually, the reality is, is that within the church, you will come across people from profoundly different backgrounds who do think in some ways quite differently to you. And that's just part of being the church. And that's partly why we have to have courageous conversations. And that's partly why they're necessary. The second thing that strikes me here is that actually having a debate about this big question is not seen as a distraction to the big picture of mission. This may be just me speaking as a bit of a kind of uh, sort of slightly disgruntled sort of theology nerd. But I think I often hear that whenever it comes to big conversations about difficult topics or about contentious issues in the life of the church, often we want to circumvent having courageous conversations. And the justification for that is actually this is just a really big distraction from like doing mission from like doing the thing that the church needs to do, which is just telling people about Jesus, right? And I get that heart and I get that posture. But I think I would want to point out that in Paul and Barnabas, and in Paul in particular, you have the person that potentially was the most pioneering missionary, the person whose writings we still read today, the person who like basically kicked off church planting. We have two people that dedicated their lives to mission, to growing the church, to telling people about Jesus, to doing what the church is all about doing. And yet they were willing to take time to have courageous conversations because actually, as will become clear in a moment, when we have them, it makes mission easier, not harder. 
And the third thing is that these conversations have and always must take place in the context of community. We don't just figure out the answers to the big questions, to the difficult conversations, by just locking ourselves on our own with our Bibles. Hey, I am as big an advocate as you can have of spending time digging into Scripture and doing so as a personal discipline. But the church has never made decisions by simply having lots of individuals. Actually, this is a community conversation. So what happens is, verse 6, the apostles and the elders meet to discuss this question. And when they come to give guidance later on after our reading in verse 28, this is what they say. They say they come to a decision because it seemed good to us and to the Holy Spirit. It seemed good to us and to the Holy Spirit. So I want to invite you as a ch uh, now, as we think about what it means to be the church, in a context where, whether it is our conversations on racial justice, whether it's debates about sexual ethics, whether it's debates about how, and how we should do church in order to reach out to our culture, don't be afraid of courageous and difficult conversations. Actually, I think that this is not a distraction from mission. This is not, not part of the point. Actually, I believe that maybe God is calling us to enter into conversations with conviction and courage in order that we learn to be the church in a more mature way. The result of these courageous conversations is, and this is the second thing, clarity and confidence. Having had these courageous conversations, actually what emerges is clarity and confidence, specifically a fresh sense of clarity and confidence in the gospel. In verse 7, we read that there is much discussion about all of these questions, but eventually Peter, as in one of the original 12 disciples, gets up and addresses the crowd. And he basically recalls what we've been reading about over the last couple of weeks, about his experience of seeing firsthand the Holy Spirit um, be poured out on a group of Gentiles. And in verse 8, he says, God, who knows the heart, showed that he had accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them, just as he did to us. And then in verse 9, he did not discriminate between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. And so after much discussion, what Peter basically does here is he gets up, he recalls his own experience, and in so doing, he basically does an amazing mic drop in the middle of this debate. Because here, having, um, having spent some time reflecting, having entered into this big discussion with people from the early church, Peter comes to a pretty profound realization that I don't think he had at the time, if you read in Acts 10. Because here's what Peter is pointing out in verses 8 and 9. He's saying, this is what I realize, is that clearly, clearly, it isn't just um, the fact that the Holy Spirit was poured out on the uh, Gentiles doesn't just tell me that they can be part of God's family. It tells me they can be part of God's family without having to be circumcised. And the reason he's able to say that is he realizes on reflection that actually the Holy Spirit didn't turn up and say, I will come and, be, and invite these people to be part of my family 
on the condition that they get circumcised and start following the law. And then eventually, in a few months after they've uh, gone through uh, sort of certain cultural adjustments, then I'll be poured out on them. No, no, no. The Holy Spirit poured out, was poured out on the Gentiles before that. And so already we see how actually having some like time to wrestle with these questions means that Peter has like a bigger picture of how and why these people could be part of the family. But wait, there's more, because in verses 10 and 11, his reflections get even more profound. Listen to this. He then says to the people, now, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of the Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? What he's saying here is he's saying, okay, you know what? The more I think about this, this is what I'm realizing. Actually, even me as someone who has been a faithful Jew and even me as part of a long line of faithful Jews, actually, I have not actually been able to keep the law. I've not been able to perfectly keep up to that standard. And so it seems to me that we really shouldn't say to this new group of potential Jesus followers, you have to do something that we've never been able to do ourselves. But wait, there's even more. Verse 11, this is what he says. No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved, not just, just as we are. So in other words, what Peter is pointing out here It's not simply that, oh, actually, God has decided that he's got a distinct pathway that means that Gentiles can get in in their own way. Actually, what Peter is doing is he's reevaluating the whole reason why he himself and all people throughout time and history have been able to be part of God's family. This isn't actually the moment where suddenly God is into grace. This isn't the moment where suddenly God decides, actually, you know what? I tried out the law. I tried out this way of showing my love. I tried out this way of having people part of my family. But you know what? It didn't work, so I'm just going to do something else. Actually, what Peter is realizing is that not only is it about grace with Gentiles, it's about grace with Jews. And not only is it about grace now, it's always been God's heart to be about grace. The reason that I'm getting quite excited about this is because what we see is that in this moment, having fully headed into controversy, having had courageous conversations, having not ducked the issues, what happens to Peter? He doesn't just get a better sense of what went on in Acts chapter 10. He gets a more clear sense of God's character. He gets a more profound sense of what the gospel is. He gets a real glimpse of God's grace of the grace that has always been at the heart of God's nature and God's story. And he realizes actually what the gospel is really about. See, what happens in Acts 15 is more than a group of people having faced difficult question, come up with a Gentile inclusion policy that they're going to put into practice. Actually, Peter, this person who had been following Jesus like step by step for three years in this moment actually truly learns what grace means, actually truly realizes who the God he's been worshiping really is. He actually realizes what God's story has always been about. And then even later on, James gets up and he quotes from an Old Testament prophet, Amos, and basically reiterates this by saying, you know what I see now? 
Actually, God has always been inclined to invite Gentiles, people outside of Israel, to be part of his family. Courageous conversations can be hard, they can be tricky, but actually, if we're willing to wrestle, then we might get invited into seeing a greater glimpse of God's grace, a greater glimpse of God's character, and that we might come away with more clarity and confidence in the gospel than ever before. And so I want to raise your expectations for what is possible when we have courageous conversations. The point of courageous conversations is not merely to disagree in a civil way. Actually, it's to come to a more profound sense of what we were talking about in the first place. And faithful wrestling can lead to a richer clarity about and confidence in the gospel. And finally, the result of this clarity is compassion without compromise. Having come to this realization, they, uh, they proceed with compassion, but this is compassion that doesn't involve compromise. Verse 19, the council decides, actually, uh, it is our judgment, James says, or it is my judgment, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. They say we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. And it strikes me that in this moment, what James is doing is James is reflecting something of God's heart. And um, uh, Will promised you a kind of seamless uh, inclusion of a kind of football-ish illustration, and, and here we are. But it strikes me, even as a Welshman, that uh, there is one question that is on everybody's lips right now, isn't there? There is one question that everybody seems to be asking, namely, is it coming home? Is it coming home? Now, as cheesy as this segue might seem, I genuinely think that it's not too dissimilar to the question that is on God's heart when he looks at you and I as broken believers and as potential followers of Jesus. Because actually, Jesus is a compassionate father looking out who wants to ask the question, are you coming home? Are you coming home? Just reflecting on my own story as, uh, as we come into land. And uh, as some of you will know, uh, a few years ago, or about just over a decade ago now, when I uh, started university, well, it's way over a decade ago now, yeah, uh, I, uh, and I started university, I had what I crudely call my spiritual gap year, which basically meant that having grown up in the church and having been invested in by some brilliant Christians, I still managed to go away to university and embrace university culture. Uh, and uh, basically, my life consisted of drinking and going out, and I became increasingly disconnected from church. I became embarrassed about my lifestyle. I felt like, you know what, actually, I just, it'd just be really awkward if I turned up to church now. And so I drifted further and further away from the faith that had formed me. I never stopped believing in Jesus. I just thought, I don't think there's a place for me in the life of the church anymore. And then one morning, I woke up, and I, uh, I was really hungover. I was at a really low ebb. I think I was pretty skint and well into my overdraft. 
things were pretty grim. And I got a message that said that my dad, who my entire life uh, had been uh, extremely reluctant to even contemplate the possibility of being a follower of Jesus, had decided that he thought Jesus was the real deal and that he wanted to follow him. And I had this like weird moment because I suddenly thought to myself, well, I'm sort of weirdly excited that dad's become a Christian and that he's gone on this journey. But I realized like I've gone in the opposite direction myself. And uh, a little bit like the younger son in the parable of the prodigal in Luke 15, it was like this moment where I came to my senses and I suddenly realized it was time to come home. It was time to come home. But one of the things I'm really grateful for in my time at university is all throughout my spiritual gap year, there were people from the church that I would go on to uh, be part of and go on to work for who kept kind of bumping into me. You know, the kind of people that did like CU toasties and would have like very kind of kind and earnest conversations with me, you know, and try and very gently ask how I was getting on because they knew I had a Christian background. But the thing that I was so grateful for was that because at every point, at every conversation, at every interaction, they had basically held up a big sign that said, the doormat says welcome. There's a welcome home if you want it. They were people who made it easy for people to turn to God. They were people that made it easy for someone who had messed up and missed the mark and who had ignored all that he believed in in order to kind of embrace a culture that he didn't even really enjoy that much. They made it really easy for me to come home. And so I guess there's two things to say here. Number one, maybe this evening, actually, that is the message that you need to hear from God amongst all of this, as well as all of this kind of big picture head stuff about what good conversations look like and, and what that can mean. You just need to hear that there is a father in heaven who is not sitting there angry, disinterested in where you are, but actually looking out, longing for you to come home, asking the question, are you going to come home? But I think there's also a challenge to us as well. To reflect on times when maybe we've made it hard for people to come home and to be the kind of people that actually reflect God's heart and reflect God's heart in such a way where we might say, let us make it easy. Let us not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Let, it not make it, let us not make it difficult for those people who right now are waiting and wondering if there's a place for them in God's church. As ever, there's always uh, more uh, in the notes. Um, but I think uh, on today of all days, that's probably uh, a good place to land. So I'm going to invite, uh, I'm going to invite the band back up and, and Will, who's going to kind of steward us in this next little bit of time that we have together to respond to what God might be saying to us.